guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Um, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie, the guy who gets to do a good bit of the preaching around here, and uh, that is no different this morning. Uh, as we dive into Luke's gospel account, uh, if this is your first time or uh, maybe it's been a while since you visited and you come back around full circle, uh, we've been working our way through the book of Luke for, for quite a while now. We've had some rest stops along the way, and we'll continue to have those a couple times over before uh, everything's said and done with, with the book of Luke. But we are steady plowing our way through this book of the Bible from start to finish We're in chapter 15 now. We'll be done with chapter 15 by the end of this morning, which means that we will have nine chapters left. We're about two-thirds of the way through this incredible book. This morning, I'll go ahead and invite you to open up to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to track uh, on the screen behind me. This morning's passage will be up there, as well as any other passages of Scripture outside of Luke's gospel account that we referenced during our time in God's Word this morning. Let me Let me go ahead and pray for us because we do have a little bit of ground to cover and we'll jump in and and get to work. Heavenly Father, as I've prayed before in the past, the fact that we could even begin a prayer with those words is all of grace. That we could call you our Father in heaven on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, your Son, that you would indwell us with your Holy Spirit as your people, as your children. All of these truths and realities, wondrous, miraculous, glorious, yet so easily lost on us, become so commonplace to us, Lord. And so I pray this morning that you would Yet again, awaken our minds out of their slumber, awaken our hearts to the wonder of everything that we're about to sit with in your word, trusting that your word never returns void. Lord, as we'll see momentarily, heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents, and I trust that if heaven rejoices over the first act of repentance in a sinner's life, that heaven rejoices over every act of repentance. And so I pray that you would draw us in your kindness to repentance, whatever that looks like this morning. And that when we sing together again on the other side of our time in the scriptures this morning, that we would find ourselves joining in the song of the angels who rejoice over your work in our lives, uh, the, the great work of grace that you have done, that you are doing, that you will continue to do. Your grace is surely lavish, your love beyond our comprehension. I pray that we would get some feeling sense of that this morning as we spend time in your word and that if we don't get a feeling sense of it, that we could look ahead in Luke's gospel account to the cross to come and we could know it. In the name of Jesus Christ, the one who would go on to die on that cross, it's in his name I pray, amen. So this morning brings us face-to-face with with one of the most beloved chapters in all of the Bible, which we find one of the most beloved stories in all of the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son. I'm guessing that this is probably not for most of us our first pass at this story. It's a story that's unique to, to Luke's gospel account, like the parable of the Good Samaritan and the story of Zacchaeus. Praise the Lord for the book of Luke, amen? 
A book filled with captivating story after captivating story, together telling the one story of redemption in Jesus Christ. Many of us, as I said, are are familiar with, or at least have heard the parable of the prodigal. And yet there's something unique about sitting with such a familiar story in the midst of a journey like the one that we're making through the book of Luke, as it helps us to see that that this is not a story told in isolation, but rather one that helps to affirm everything that Jesus has been saying for several chapters now. If you pick up the story in verse one of chapter 15, Luke tells us, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. If you've been with us, on this journey for any significant period of time, I trust that your response to these words is not, oh my goodness, what? I mean, Jesus receiving sinners and tax collectors and religious leaders grumbling about it? I've never seen this before. This is all new information to me. No, we, we've seen these two themes for the better part of at least 10 chapters now, the, the growing controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders and the growing sense of hope and joy in the hearts of those who trust in him. You may recall the story of Jesus in the presence of a large company of sinners and tax collectors back in chapter five in the house of Levi, a former tax collector himself whom Jesus invited into a life of forgiveness and discipleship. In Jesus's day, we we talked about this when we were back in chapter five of Luke's gospel account. In Jesus's day, tax collectors were swindlers by reputation, subcontracted by the Romans for the collection of revenue so that anyone who wanted to be a tax collector would put in a bid for a particular area and the Romans would award the contract to the highest bidder. The tax collector would then collect from the people not only the amount of the bid, but additional revenue in order to establish a profit for himself. Sadly, many tax collectors would collect far more than what was necessary to make a decent living leaving people in burdensome financial situations. To add insult to injury, they weren't robbing just anyone, but their own people, considered traitors and acting as a representation of Roman oppression toward their Jewish kinsmen, considered by many Jews to be God's enemies so that many in society wanted nothing to do with tax collectors, leaving them to run in social circles with each other. In the words of one commentator, sinfully rich and socially ostracized. That's what it was to be a tax collector. In contrast, the scribes and Pharisees, as we've talked about before, were models of virtue. The word Pharisee itself meaning separatist. They had established a code of morals and regulations that went far beyond the scriptures, referred to, as I've said before, by Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible as the extra super holy people so that most people believe that they could never be that righteous. Some of the more militant Pharisees going so far as to use violence to establish and maintain strict, intensified observance of the the Jewish law, believing that that would establish the right conditions for God to make good on his promises. And then along comes Jesus, speaking with an authority all his own, drawing large crowds and talking about the kingdom of, of God in a very different way than the scribes and Pharisees were talking about the kingdom of God. Declaring Jesus was that he has the power to forgive sins, which only God can do. Eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, offering God's kingdom to all the wrong people. 
So the Pharisees, they come out of the cracks and crevices of society to see for themselves what Jesus is up to, wondering whether he's come to overthrow the law, having themselves created new laws that God never imposed on on his people, a fence within the fence, so to speak. All the while, leveraging spiritual disciplines as a means of self-justification, as a a rung-climbing means of self-glory, as people do even this very day, unable to see their, their great need, perceiving themselves to be spiritually healthy in the eyes of God, unwilling to accept Jesus' diagnosis of the sickness of, the sin, of sin in their own hearts, refusing to fall at his feet in repentance and trust, suspicious of joy on the outside looking in, Coming back to this morning's passage, it's with these two escalating themes and the imagery associated with them in mind that Jesus offers the following trilogy of parables. Look at verse three. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the first of three parables that that make up this chapter of Luke's gospel account, all three communicating something of the nature of the kingdom of God. In this case, the parable of the lost sheep, where Jesus paints a picture of the shepherd of a large flock, so large that he likely had others employed to help him in the task of shepherding. And one day, one of the sheep goes missing, lost out in the open country. It would have been easy to just write off the loss, wouldn't it? Reduce the man's tax bill, so to speak. After all, he's doing pretty well for himself. I mean, what's the loss of one when you have 99? That's not what the the shepherd does, as he deeply cares about the one lost sheep. So much that he doesn't send a hired hand out, but he goes into the open country himself. And upon finding that lost sheep, what does Jesus tell us? He puts a collar on it and drags it in shame all the way home. No. He carries it back on his own shoulders An incredibly burdensome task, mind you. Does he groan as he does so? Does he complain on the journey home? No, he doesn't wait till he gets home to rejoice. He rejoices every single step of the way. Because what was lost has now been found. Jesus uses that word picture to teach on what the kingdom of heaven is like. A kingdom that rejoices with more gladness over one sinner who repents, verse 7, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The Pharisees, keep this in mind, representing the 99 who never ran away, who behaved themselves. Already you see this precursor to the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal. What did Jesus say going back to chapter 5 in response to the criticism of the scribes and Pharisees? as he shared a meal with sinners and tax collectors in the house of Levi. Chapter five, verse 31. 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That Jesus is the good shepherd. Most of us know this. Having journeyed into the, the lost country, the open country of our fallen sinful world in order to seek and save his wayward sheep. On the journey here in Luke 15 to Jerusalem in the bigger picture where he would bear like the shepherd in the parable our sin upon his shoulders. We just sang it. With the imagery of the the parable of the lost sheep in mind, I just want to read the words of Isaiah 53 over us for a moment. And picture the imagery of that parable as we read it. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on his shoulders, the iniquity of us all. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Picture a shepherd, Jesus says, who carries once wayward sheep on his shoulders, rejoicing all the way home, joining the chorus of the angels. He goes on. Verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the telling of this second parable, Jesus paints a picture of a woman having lost not a sheep, but a coin. The coin described here, the Greek drachma, representing roughly a day's wage. That gives you an indication of the value here. Unlike the shepherd, this is not a woman who can afford to write the loss off on her taxes, having lost a piece of her livelihood in a sense. And so she, she diligently searches in the darkness, sweeping away the straw covering the, the dirt floor until she finds that coin. The coin itself likely covered in dirt and dust and grime as the woman reaches down and takes hold of it as her possession Jesus uses that word picture too to teach us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Whereas the shepherd searched because he cared for the sheep, the woman searched because the coin was of immense value to her. Both communicating something of God's heart in pursuing lost sinners because he both cares for them deeply and values them immensely. If you're a Christian, don't let that be lost on you. God reaches down into the darkness to use the imagery of the parable in the person of Jesus Christ himself and picks up dirty sinners out of the dirt and dust of their sin, taking hold of them into his possession. It's another eye-opening moment for the religious leaders who believe that God would welcome a repentant sinner, sure, but would surely never pursue sinners and tax collectors. No way. That's not our God. What is the kingdom of heaven like? 
Picture a woman, Jesus says, who reaches down into the dirt and dust to take hold of her treasured possession, unashamedly rejoicing with those dearest to her, joining the chorus of the angels. But just in case we need more, Jesus goes on to this most famous of the three parables in Luke 15, verse 11, as he says, And there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Right, here, here Jesus paints a, a picture of a man with two sons, the younger asking for his inheritance early. He might as well have said to his father, I wish you were dead. Shame and embarrassment coming much earlier in this story than perhaps we may be inclined to think. The younger son looking for instant gratification in his journey to find happiness and, and meaning under the sun, to use that Ecclesiastes language. And surprisingly, his father agrees to, to divide the land with a third of the land going to the younger son. The remainder promised to the eldest son as it was Jewish custom for the firstborn to receive a double portion, Deuteronomy chapter 21. And the younger son sells his portion of the land, liquidating his assets in the stockpiling of some cold hard cash, and he hits the road. As Jesus tells us, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Right, we're told that the younger son takes his liquidated assets, and he journeys not to the next town over, where news of his carousing might make it back to his family and friends, no, he goes far away into the open country to use that language of the parable of the lost sheep where he could live as he had always wanted to live, unrestrained. And eventually he hits rock bottom, just like the author of Ecclesiastes. Having squandered his money in reckless living right around the time that a famine arises in the land, forced to farm himself out as a hired hand to a Gentile, having sought freedom and pleasure, now enslaved and miserable in that faraway land. Irony of ironies, right? But it gets worse. Not only does he find himself in the servitude of a Gentile, but a Jewish man in the fields with the pigs, ceremonially unclean, ritually impure, so hungry and destitute that he longs for a seat at the trough when the banqueting table of his father was right in front of him. It goes on in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." Tragedy has a way, and many of you, this is part of your story, of bringing people to the end of themselves. And with that, redemption for some. In this case, a, a moment of true repentance here in these verses as the man reverses course, leaving the far country behind, having prepared his confession, 
grieved not, not simply by the consequences of his sin, but more than that, that he had sinned against heaven and before his father. Like David in the wake of his adultery, Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Restore to me, Lord, the joy of your salvation. A broken and contrite heart, expecting not, not the spoils of sonship, but the mercy of being treated as a hired hand. And he arose, verse 20, and he came to his father, Jesus tells us. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Imagine for a second with me what the young man must have looked like in the wake of that long, arduous journey with with few, if any, resources in hand. Clothes tattered, body filthy, stomach empty, likely looking like a beggar by journey's end. And yet his father has no trouble recognizing him off in the distance, tattered clothes and all. Never having stopped the father daily looking to the horizon in hopeful anticipation of his son's return. Risking in this moment public humiliation, though his younger son's already humiliated him to begin the story with, as he runs toward his tax-collecting son covered in the smell of swine, embracing his son in his filth as God does with every sinner who repents. The son's speech, notice, interrupted. He doesn't get to, to the part about being a servant or a hired hand before his father meets him with mercy and grace, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Here the the theme of rejoicing, as we see it in the first two parables, is given full expression as the the father throws a party to end all parties. Bring my best robe. Put it on my boy. Put one of my finest rings on his finger. Put shoes on his feet for crying out loud. He's not a servant. He's a son. Bring out the Wagyu, the Pappy Van Winkle. My son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. That's your God, Christian. The happiness and freedom, think about this, that the once wayward son had sought in the open country. He found those very things that he had sought in vain in his father's arms. If I could remind many of us who have seen this verse before, Zephaniah 3.17, for some of us this may be new information. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Picture a father, Jesus says, who runs to embrace his empty-pocketed beggarly son 
and spares no expense in celebrating his homecoming from the far country, the outer country, rejoicing over him with gladness, quieting him with his love, exulting over him with loud singing, joining the chorus of the angels of heaven. That would have been a great ending, wouldn't it? Parable over. If Jesus had just said the end, everyone could have gone on their way in merriment. And yet that's not how the story ends as Jesus presents us with something of a plot twist. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The older son, he's he's out in the field as he had surely been each and every day that his brother was out carousing. On this day, hearing a strange sound off in the distance, sound of music, sound of dancing. So he calls for, for one of his servants, wondering if he's missed something on the family calendar. What's going on here? And his servant says, haven't you heard? Your, your brother's back from Amsterdam. Your father, he's called for the choicest meat, the finest wine, in celebration of his safe return. And the brother said, let's go party. No, verse 28 one of the most eye-opening statements in Luke's gospel account. But he, the older son, was angry and refused to go in. It's a shocking twist in the plot. As the older son stands out in the cold, enraged, the sound of music and dancing, mind you, so close he could feel the thump of it. The smell of the feast so near he could taste it. And his father came out and entreated him, Jesus tells us. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you you killed the fattened calf for him? We can easily get into our minds that Jesus doesn't care about the religious lost. And yet he shows us here that just as the father had run out to embrace his younger son earlier that day, so the father steps out into the cold to entreat his older son. But the son answers, I obeyed you all these years. I was one of the 99 righteous sheep that never ran away. I went to church every Sunday. I faithfully read my Bible. Never missed a day of prayer. Where's my fattened calf? Anybody relate to that when things go wrong in life? This idea that we can put God in our debt somehow? No addressing of his father, his father, unlike his younger brother, verse 21, in the receiving of the father's embrace, No addressing of his brother as brother. Instead, referring to him as this son of yours. 
just as dishonorable to his father as his younger brother had been when the story began. It wasn't about family for him. It was about behaving and doing and earning. In the words of one scholar, and this is a haunting quote, it is possible for us elder brothers to leave the father without leaving the farm. And he said to him, verse 31, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Right? The father risks undignified embarrassment as he continues to entreat his self-righteous, shaming son. Declaring, this fattened calf is yours too, my son. You need only come in and join this, this fitting celebration. It brings to mind chapter 13, the imagery of the narrow door. A door that, that must be entered. Right? This parable is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. Or perhaps the parable of the younger lost son. However, th- this story is just as much about the older brother and the father as it is about the younger brother. The parable might better be called the parable of the two lost sons. It's really easy to see the lostness of the the younger brother who went off and squandered his father's inheritance in reckless living. It's not so easy to see the lostness of the younger or the older brother, I should say, who who thought that he could put his father in his debt through self-wrought obedience. No joy in his life. No dancing. In fact, when he heard the sound of music off in the distance, he thought it was strange. Just dutiful servitude. The opposite of the younger brother in that he was enslaved, though sonship was his for the taking. In the end, In the irony of all ironies, it was the younger brother who returned home, was forgiven, and was embraced by his father, who stood inside his father's house in joyful celebration. Meanwhile, it was the older brother standing on the outside looking in, filled with self-righteous anger. Jesus leaves the story open-ended for a reason, just like the story of Jonah. As he stands... In terms of the context of where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 15, amidst a crowd of both younger brothers, sinners and tax collectors, and older brothers, scribes and Pharisees. It's the tax collectors and sinners, verse 1, having drawn near to hear him, right after having heard Jesus say at the end of chapter 14, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The scribes and Pharisees, they're right at Jesus' feet as he's telling these parables. While the scribes and Pharisees are standing on the peripheral edges of the crowd, at a distance, outside of the house, just like the older brother in the parable. Convinced of their own self-righteousness, angry at Jesus for offering God's kingdom to all the wrong people. Suspicious of joy. On the outside, looking in finding the celebratory song and dance of what Jesus is doing to be peculiar and strange. What will the scribes and Pharisees do? What will you and I do? 
as we sit with the, the vivid imagery associated with these three parables. Heaven rejoices, Jesus says, over one sinner who repents, whether for the first time or the 10,000th time, be it the sin of reckless living or the sin of self-righteous pride. All that is mine is yours, says the Father. You need only come in and join the celebration. The, the parable of the prodigal son could easily be entitled the parable of the two lost sons, but, but maybe most appropriately, it should be entitled the parable of the prodigal God. After all, the, the word parable or prodigal means extremely generous or lavish. And doesn't this parable, more than anything, scream of the lavish love of the Father himself? In a moment, we're going to continue to worship this God of lavish love and immeasurable grace. And the question for us is, will we enter into that song and dance? And not just in this moment, not in a compartmentalized way. That's just as much an older brother thing to do as anything else, to compartmentalize our our relationship with the Father into these, these moments, these hours on Sunday morning, or maybe a small group slot of our lives, and then to live however we want apart from the Father, apart from relationship with Him, the, the, the remainder of, of our hours and days. No, this is practice, what we're doing right now. We, as we join in with the angels and then leave this place and continue the great celebration that we've been invited into by God's grace because of Christ the good shepherd who Luke will go on to tell us would die in our place bearing our sins upon his shoulders that we might be brought in. I don't know about you, but I see myself all over all three of these parables. I can identify with the one wayward sheep who ran away from the fold I can identify with the 99, smug and well-behaved, looking at the shepherd, expecting something of him in terms of having put him in my debt. I can identify with the dirty, filthy, grime-covered coin lost under the straw and, and rubble that God reached down and made his treasured possession. I can identify with the younger brother I've been to Amsterdam a few times. I can identify with the older brother. I couldn't tell you the number of times that I've had this feeling sense that God owes me something when things are not going well, when all has come unraveled in my life. I trust that we all can identify with someone or something in these stories that Jesus tells. And as he leaves it open-ended, I'll do the same. And just leave you with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to explore the implications of what God might be calling you to in light of our time in the scriptures this morning. I do invite you, as the Father does in that last parable, to enter in the house and join in this celebration that we're about to participate in. And I hope that it's not just a rote exercise. I hope that, that we're able to sing these words and, and have a feeling sense of what we're saying and singing and, and and that we can mean them with fullness of heart as we consider the imagery here that's before us in Scripture this morning. We'll also have an opportunity to worship through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. If you missed it on your way in, there are communion cups on the back table there. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you.
Again, there's a lot to sit with in terms of the the gospel-centered imagery of these stories. And so I just leave you with whatever the Lord would bring before you as you prepare to take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to partake of the Lord's Supper, but rather that your next step would be a step of faith and repentance, trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that you would enter into the celebration, that you would step into the house by God's grace.